first ever successful in vitro fertilization, or IVF, procedure was performed in 1978 and culminated with the birth of a child, who is now a woman, named Louise Brown. Louise's story caused a media uproar at the time. It probably didn't help that many members of the press began to refer to her as a test tube baby, a label that was totally incorrect, by the way. She was conceived in a petri dish, which is where the term in vitro comes from. It's Latin for in glass. But having a sperm and an egg meet in a petri dish instead of in a mother's fallopian tubes, and another fun fact here, fertilization of an egg by a sperm usually takes place in the third portion of the fallopian tube, which is called the ampulla, which is Latin for flask. That doesn't change much of the other mechanics of the process. After fertilization occurs, the fertilized egg grows for a few days in an embryo culture, a substance made of either cells from the mother's uterine wall or an artificial approximation of the same. And after that, the fertilized egg, also called a zygote, is transferred either into its mother's uterus or the uterus of another woman who will serve as the surrogate, the person who will carry it to term. Now, thankfully, despite the hubbub of concern over what would happen to this child who was born in what many considered to be a wildly unnatural way, she turned out just fine and went on to have kids of her own without using IVF. Her sister, who was also a product of IVF, also a quote-unquote test tube baby, had her own kids as well, sans IVF. In the decades since, this procedure has been evolved and augmented in many different ways and is now better understood, as are the potential complications that can arise from it. And there are potential complications, including locally relevant things, like an increased chance of gestational diabetes or a low birth weight in the child, and hypertensive disorders like preeclampsia in the mother. And there are also statistically relevant complications, like sex ratio distortions in IVF births, some techniques like intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI, result in a slightly higher female-to-male ratio, something like 51.3% of all births using this technique are female births, while blastocyst transfer techniques result in around 56.1% male births. Both represent a deviation from the standard birth rate, which in most industrialized countries favors male births just a tiny bit, but generally only by a fraction of a percent. Otherwise, it's relatively close to 50-50. So 51.3% in favor of female births and 56.1% in favor of male births are substantial deviations from that norm that are caused by these procedures. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention here in the U.S., releases periodic reports on the use of assisted reproductive technologies, or ARTs, and the most recent tabulated report is from 2014. There is actually raw data from 2015 available online as well, and I'll link to that in the show notes if you're interested in wading through a massive spreadsheet of numbers and clinic names, but in 2014, 
231,936 ART cycles, most of which were IVFs of some kind, were performed. And these resulted in 60,778 live births and 72,913 babies. So lots of multiple births, twins and triplets in there, which is another common side effect of IVF, by the way. It's important to note that nearly 46,000 of those cycles were banking-related, involving the freezing and storing of eggs or sperm. So the numbers I just gave should not be directly compared, not all IVF treatments result in babies being born, but the numbers are still pretty solid. The average success rate is heavily influenced by the age of those involved and lifestyle factors, like the overall health of the mother and whether or not she smokes. But the average rate usually lingers somewhere in the 20 to 50% success rate region, which is substantially better than the zero or low single digit percentages that many people face otherwise. There have been religious pushbacks against the use of IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies, as some people see them as unnatural and therefore wrong in some moral way. There have been political positions taken against them for the same or similar reasons. And there have been numerous, and in some cases warranted, concerns about these procedures becoming a resource only for the wealthy, one more advantage enjoyed by the moneyed of society over the unmoneyed, or they're becoming an excuse for unscrupulous medical professionals to earn a buck by creating more demand for a very particular lifestyle choice. In this case, the desire to have a biological baby at any cost, as opposed to either not having a baby at all or adopting a child. And as I said, these are warranted concerns. It's yet to be seen how warranted, but not all of the pushback against these types of technologies are of the, oh my god, it's new, so we should probably be scared variety. But as contentious as in vitro fertilization has been, a new technology, one that is still being developed, but which is already raising hackles, could prove to be even more evolutionary, both for those who make use of it and for the societies in which those people live. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start from today comes from Undark Magazine, which, if you don't already read Undark, it is very much worth your time. They are a, quote, non-profit, editorially independent digital magazine exploring the intersection of science and society, end quote. And their tagline is, Truth, Beauty, Science. They do very good work. I'm consistently very, very happy with the articles that they publish. And this article is from them, and it is entitled Nurturing Controversy, The Real Science Behind the Artificial Womb. The subtitle to this article is revealing, quote, an innovation aimed at helping premature babies survive spurred wild dystopian speculation and left both physiology and technology in the dust, end quote. That's a pretty good summary of what happened here. Early in 2017, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia 
revealed that they had developed a technology that would allow them to sustain a prematurely born lamb. Premature, in this case, referring to a lamb that was born early for a lamb, but it was the lamb equivalent to having been born at about 23 to 24 weeks for a human baby. So that's extremely early, about six months gestation instead of the usual nine months, only two-thirds of the way done, which can cause all kinds of problems for the baby, if the baby even survives, which is nowhere near a given. Around 30,000 babies are born that early in the U.S. each year. So being able to demonstrate such a technology and being able to show that it already works on another mammal that is similarly premature seemed like a pretty good thing. It indicated that using this technology could allow more preemies on the extreme end of things to survive and to quite possibly do so without developing any lifelong health problems. That was the purpose of these tests. The response to the publication of information about the technology, however, was much wider in focus and more elaborate in supposition. When the news of this technology was released, comparisons were almost immediately made to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is also worth reading if you have not read it. I'm certain I've mentioned it before on this show, as it is an excellent extrapolation of how many different contemporary technologies could evolve and what that could mean for society. In this case, the comparison was fairly literal. In the book, babies are conceived and gestated outside the body, and the autocratic state that runs things, a fairly benevolent autocracy, all things considered, controls how these babies come to term, how they're born, and it indoctrinates them with pro-social traits relative to their caste, which is maintained biologically. In essence, babies are programmed in their artificial wombs to be more or less intelligent, more or less physically capable, and so on, which then pre-stratifies society, and which then, alongside their later propagandized education, keeps civilization steady and strong by making sure everyone knows their place. It's a kind of dystopian utopia. So comparisons to that particular science fiction extreme were pretty immediate. Other responses to this, again, potential preemie saving technology, focused more on the near term. The New Statesman published a piece entitled, Artificial Wombs Are Only Three Years Away. How Scared Should Women Be? Not terribly subtle with the scaremongering there, are they? Bizarrely, this piece was actually approached from a pseudo-feminist perspective and addressed a purported hope by so-called men's rights activists to make women obsolete by essentially removing them from the procreation process. If we can make babies without women, the theory goes, then we can breed women out of the equation without causing humanity to go extinct. This perspective does not really surprise me, as nonsensical as these men's rights activist groups tend to be, but the idea posited in the article countering this bizarre dream is itself a little bizarre. It seems to imply that women are only valuable for their reproductive organs. To have that presented as part of a pseudo-feminist position is a little bit disorienting. The meat of the Undark article 
is about the technology itself, but also about these responses to it, about the remarkable explosion of discussion around adjacent but often otherwise unrelated topics anytime the concept of changing the way babies are conceived is presented and nudged into the spotlight. This was all predicated on research about saving preemies, and the wave of think pieces and fluff stories that hit the news in response were mostly about everything else, about making the human species monogender, and about eugenics, and government-controlled reproduction, and genetically engineering superbabies. Part of the reason for this, I think, is that these other concepts are just a lot sexier. They're confrontational. They're bloody. And there are plenty of heroes and villains. There are treasured norms being challenged. These other topics encourage us to line up on opposing sides so we can take pot shots at each other on social media, on blogs, and yes, in the pages of news magazines that are looking to fill space each week. It's good for business. Now, some controversies are manufactured, and you could certainly argue that this article is a bizarre catalyst for some of the discussions that were started in its wake. But you could also argue that if we're not having these conversations in the public sphere via other means, why not take any excuse possible to bring them up? Why not address some very serious, perhaps civilization-shaking issues whenever the opportunity arises, whatever catalyzes those discussions? Let's dig a little deeper into that. Let's talk about why this is such a controversial topic. This referring to any change to the status quo in terms of how we reproduce, technologically or systemically or biologically or practically. Women give birth to children. Biologically, this has just been an unavoidable reality for all of human history. And that reality has, in turn, shaped our perception of the female gender, again, both biologically but also the socially constructed female gender. It's also shaped our perception of women and girls and their place in society, how society is structured based on this reality, the myths and legends about how things came to be, our ideas about what is good and normal and proper, what it is to be a man within this larger context, what a baby means to us as individuals and as societies, and how we respond to things like the death of babies, the inviability of embryos, the inability to conceive, and things of that nature. All of these things vary from culture to culture. Our responses to them will be different depending on where you go, and also have varied throughout time, and will no doubt continue to vary into the future. Cultural shifts, which have often been influenced by technological shifts, but not always, have changed our ideas about what is proper in terms of how babies are delivered. Once, babies were delivered at home, and now they are often delivered in hospitals. That said, in developed countries where it's common to go to hospitals with masks and gloves and antiseptic smells and powerful painkillers, sometimes it becomes a trend to move in the other direction with something that feels a little more natural and traditional and less like an assembly line, regardless of the implicit benefits of that assembly line structure. Now ask someone from another time period or another culture what they think about how your culture delivers babies, 
and you're just as likely to be met with scorn as with approval. Caesarean section deliveries didn't become common until the 1800s with the advent of antiseptics and anesthetics. Before that, such procedures were only undertaken in the most dire of circumstances. Today, there's evidence that the increasingly common C-section might result in higher instances of allergies in babies because the infant does not pass through its mother's birth canal and is therefore exposed to fewer of its mother's microbes on the way out. Shifts in which procedures are common can influence what we perceive to be good and normal and desirable, and in turn can influence our cultural norms related to birthing. C-sections would perhaps be an abomination to our distant ancestors, but could also be perceived as the same, an abomination by our descendants, who might know more about the downsides of this method than we do. What's normal today isn't necessarily normal tomorrow, because norms shift over time for a variety of reasons. And what's perceived to be good, and even sacred, also shifts alongside those norms. A quick aside here, there's research currently being done about how to assuage some of the possible negative side effects of C-sections by basically wiping down a baby with a gauze that is soaked with microbes from its mother's birth canal, the gauze sample taken pre-birth. Now this could, in theory, allow the baby to get the same biological benefits of passing through the birth canal while maintaining the benefits of a C-section. That research is still underway, but I think it's neat that it's happening. Okay, end of the aside. In most cultures, even the hint of a rumor that something might damage a child, some person, some new technology, some societal shift, that can cause otherwise rational people to behave irrationally. It can also rile up movements, including positive ones, like those which led to modern child labor laws, but also sometimes negative ones, like the current flare-up of anti-vaccine misinformation that's being spread to and by well-meaning parents. It's easy to cause knee-jerk emotional responses in people with this type of information because, well, they're kids. We have reflexes as individuals and societally to protect children. And this can sometimes manifest as immediate, knee-jerk, unwarranted mistrust of any technology that adjusts our relationship with our kids, or the way in which those kids are brought into the world. Beyond the it-might-hurt-our-kids response to any new thing, including counterintuitively preemie-saving technologies, there's a concept that was somewhat ham-fistedly brought up in the New Statesman article that I mentioned before, that concept that women might become worthless or less valuable in some sense if they are not a key component, one might say the most vital component, of the offspring production process. Rites of passage could disappear. The seemingly sacred bond between a child and its mother might be lost, or in some way changed. Which, I mean, it's a valid consideration. So many of our traditions, our civilizational structures, are predicated on making sure that we fulfill our biological imperative. And yes, the specifics of what that means has changed over the years. Today we have hospitals and painkillers to aid with the birthing process, 
and we have many more ways to peacock and pronk and demonstrate our fitness for procreation than we did back in pre-agrarian times. But at the end of the day, you won't find many societal structures that are not, at their core, oriented around ensuring that people can keep having kids. Any society that does not have this as a linchpin would disappear, probably in about a generation, for obvious reasons. So it's safe to say that even with all the other changes we've seen when it comes to the place of women in society, especially in the last hundred years or so, this specific role as child birther is still foundational and treasured in a different way. And for many people, anything that shifts those implied responsibilities or rights, or even implies that the relationships involved might be feasibly adjusted in some small way, anything that does that is just obviously bad. We shouldn't meddle with such things. These things are sacred and natural and good and pure, and only a monster would want to take these things away or change them at all. This knee-jerk response is so potent that we even see it in response to changes to that traditional process that would actually result in healthier, safer mothers and children. As I mentioned in the intro, IVF technologies have been criticized by those who want to maintain what they see as more traditional mechanisms of giving birth, even if those mechanisms are far more dangerous than the alternative, or in some cases disallow some people from having children at all. That said, internal conflict when it comes to this issue is not unusual. You might see a technology that can save babies and both approve because you like babies, or at the very least don't want babies to die, and disapprove because you think that technology might negatively influence the relationship between mother and child. Likewise, you might be repelled by machines that seem poised to take away a woman's responsibility to carry her own child to term, while also appreciating that same machine's potential to liberate women from some of the difficult choices they might have to make choosing between pregnancy and every other thing that she may wish to do with her life. Which brings me to another controversial subtopic, how technologies that change traditional pregnancy expectations might, in turn, change societal gender dynamics. Like so many other things being discussed in this episode, the specifics of this will vary greatly, in some cases, from society to society. But a technology that could, theoretically, at some point in the future, allow women to no longer need to be pregnant as part of the process of having a child. If instead of just being used for preemies, these devices, these technologies and systems would allow anyone and everyone to utilize something similar to IVF and then something similar to this incubation technology, to have the entire pregnancy take place outside of the body, that could have massive societal repercussions. Now, for some, those repercussions would be very welcome. Especially today, the way things are set up, the way the deck is stacked, women are often at a significant disadvantage professionally because they could someday have a child. And so that's a disadvantage in terms of their own decisions and what they want to focus on, but also because of the stereotypical perception that they will then turn their attention at least partially elsewhere, maybe distracting them from work, and maybe they'll even be less physically capable of doing their work for a period of time because of the effects of pregnancy. 
and that perception alone is harmful, and it has at times been cited as the reason for why qualified women have been overlooked in favor of men for jobs and promotions. And this certainly isn't right. It's not good that this happens, but it's a reality that many women know they face, even if laws in many countries prevent employers from explicitly saying that this is the variable in the hiring math that they did that kept that woman from getting that job or that promotion. And so for a lot of people facing those types of potential barriers, this would be a welcome break because they would have the option themselves to avoid those things, but they would also potentially be able to avoid that harmful infrastructural perception within many different industries. For others, though, the repercussions of this technology would be a whole lot more unwelcome. There are people who hold conservative ideologies, who also hold sacred the structure of traditional gender dynamics, women who were no longer tethered to that type of arrangement, and who could even theoretically have kids on their own without impeding themselves in any way, physically or with the relationship that might traditionally be a part of that process. They wouldn't need a man in their life to make it work biologically. They could be even more inclined to want a shift in that traditional arrangement. Now, changes of this kind are already taking place across all cultures around the world, but it's within the realm of possibility that this shift away from those traditional gender roles could be sped up by technologies that change the physical reality, the practical considerations of pregnancy. Many of the things that currently handicap women in the pursuit of their own lives and careers would no longer be handicaps, at least not in the same way. And that could change over time, or perhaps even very quickly, a lot of those cherished by some traditional dynamics. For many people, I'm guessing the response to the widespread availability of such a technology would be somewhat mixed. And again, we're talking about the theorized extrapolation of the preemie saving technology from the Undark article. Right now, all it does is help prematurely born babies survive. It increases their survival rates. But if expanded upon, and if it were to become something that allowed women to have children without having to carry them to term, you simply provide an egg, add some sperm, and let the machine do its business, there could be some conflicted feelings. I think it's possible to like the idea of more infrastructural equality between genders while also feeling a little bit nostalgic for the rituals and routines attached to traditional baby having. It's possible to not want to keep women in their place, but also feel that we might lose something if things are suddenly rearranged so that many of the incentives to form traditional relationship structures disappear very suddenly. It's possible to feel that, as a woman, you'd prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, while also welcoming the option to do things otherwise, should you choose. Having those types of options could be disconcerting. And further disconcerting are some of the potential secondary consequences of having such a technology. It's possible, for instance, that we could move toward a brave new world style of birthing, where the concept of parents ceases to mean much. And children are conceived, birthed, and educated by an all-powerful superstate. Or, slightly less disconcertingly, we could have that same process, but instead of being raised by the state, the children would be raised by communities of adults. A less dystopian outcome, 
but still a major shift in the way that we organize and bond with each other, and potentially, in a different way, disconcerting, depending on how sacred you believe the parent-child relationship and traditional family structure, as we view it today at least, is. We might also see a world in which having a baby without becoming pregnant is a benefit available only to the wealthy, which could grant additional infrastructural advantages to the haves, while the have-nots continue to face all of the disadvantages, both physical and the aforementioned perception downsides of carrying a baby to term. It's a relatively small thing compared to other advantages that the powerful have, but small things do add up over time, further widening the gap between those with and those without. One more big and relevant concern is that this technology could be used as a first step, or even an inroad, to increased use of genetic modification technologies in embryos. There are a slew of tests being run in this domain today, though there are currently no proven ways to, for instance, make a child smarter by altering its genes while it's still an embryo. The concept of intelligence is incredibly complex, and we don't know exactly what causes different capabilities in different people yet, which genes align with different biological features, so it's not feasible even from the most fundamental level to do that. And on top of that, the precursor technologies that would be necessary to make genetically superior super babies, like being able to peek inside the embryo's genes and understand what those genes are telling us, these are also dubious propositions at best. There are techniques on the market today that claim to allow parents to do this, but none have been shown in rigorous testing to work better than chance. And some have even been shown to be less successful than pure chance in tests that involved choosing between embryos, deciding which to bring to term based on which were the least likely to have certain genetic conditions that the parents were carriers of and did not wish to pass on to the next generation, diseases and things like that. So some claim to be able to do that, to look inside an embryo and say, yeah, we can totally tell genetically what this thing's going to look like, but further testing has shown that that is not yet the case. We have theories about how this can be done, but either those theories are flawed or our approach is. In either case, this field is moving quickly, and though a lot of deservedly newsworthy stuff is happening in adjacent spaces, like in the rapidly developing world of CRISPR-Cas9 techniques, doing anything like that to embryos is still not a reality. Maybe someday this will be a legit concern, but for the moment we can only imagine and speculate what that might even look like. So there are a lot of big discussions to have in this space, and though some of the concerns are a little bit farsighted based on where we are now, I don't think any of them should be off the table completely. It's a good idea to confront even some of the more outlandish possibilities so that we can be better prepared if and when they do arrive. Doing so will help us imagine and avoid more potential pitfalls and give us the chance to prepare ourselves psychologically if the day arrives that they do become a reality as well. That said, we should also be realistic about what we're actually talking about when a real tangible technology becomes a reality. In this case, we are talking about a technique and equipment and procedures that can help premature babies survive and with a reduced chance of serious lifelong consequences. 
That's what we're discussing, not genetically modified superbabies or rearranging society to do away with traditional gender norms. Other consequences might emerge, secondarily, from such a technology, and almost certainly will, and that's worth considering and wondering about and discussing. But to extrapolate infinitely and then judge a contemporary opportunity that is very concrete and real through the lens of that wild extrapolation is not a legitimate way to assess its value. Seeing the world through that lens, we'd never change anything or adopt any new technology because there are a limitless number of negative potential consequences for even the smallest innovation. It's smart to consider downsides, but it's cowardly to rifle through the multiverse and all potential outcomes for something that justifies our inherent disconcertion. It's possible to flail wildly and come up with excuses as to why something should never come to be, but we'd never grow and things would never get better if we allowed ourselves to do this every time we felt a pang of potential precognitive regret. One more quick point that I want to make is about the difference between process and product. In some cases, what we really value in a tradition or a routine is the process, the journey. We go on a trip somewhere, but that somewhere at the end of the trip is really just an excuse to be in transit, to fly on a plane, to go on an adventure with a partner, to get away from our standard humdrum lifestyle. In other cases, what we really crave is the end result, the object or other prize that is the consequence of that process. We don't particularly like to cook, maybe, but we love to eat. We maybe don't have any love for driving, but arriving at a friend's house for a party is worth the effort. In this context, pregnancy and everything to do with pregnancy is the process. Having a baby is the product. Some people really just want the baby, and they'll maybe adopt or they'll use whatever technologies are available to achieve that end goal of having a baby with or without the pregnancy. The baby is the point. The means of getting there is less relevant. For others, though, the pregnancy is a big part of what they actually want. They want the baby, almost certainly, hopefully, at least. But they'll also really truly want to participate in that tradition, to have that layer of intimacy with their future child, to go through the biological motions that generations of humans have gone through before. There's no easy solution here for those who value the process when it comes to this type of technology. And that's one big concern about this type of shift, is that it dramatically changes a lot of the processes to arrive at the outcomes in what is usually a better way, better in terms of the product. Our technologies can help more children survive the process of birth, which helps us get to that product better than we ever have before. Perfectly healthy babies, every time, is a compelling outcome. But that's not the only concern. The process is part of this conversation, and many tools that help us achieve healthier babies are not always fulfilling in the same way that biological drives and generationally and culturally reinforced traditions can be. And that's a legitimate point of discussion, alongside the other legitimate point, which is that these technologies can help a lot of people who could not otherwise have kids to have kids. Ideally, we maintain a kind of binocular vision 
in terms of keeping both of those priorities in mind, the process and the product, but also in terms of allowing ourselves to imagine all kinds of possible future outcomes, both negative and positive, while also allowing ourselves to consider the value of the tools that we have at our fingertips today. Instead of recommending a book today, I actually want to recommend a TV show, which is a little bit unusual, but I've been trying over the past year, year and a half to get caught up on TV stuff because there actually are a lot of amazing shows out there today. It's kind of a golden age moment for TV. And it's almost like we need a different name for it because these are real hardcore, high quality prestige shows that are kind of like super long movies broken up into episodes. And one such show is a cartoon that's on Netflix called Bojack Horseman. And if you haven't seen it before, it's definitely worth a look. I overlooked this for a very long time. I am not super into the kind of family guy style cartoons. They're they're fun periodically. I kind of thought that this show was going to be something like that. And there are a lot of kind of goofy hijinks but it doesn't rely on that. And there's just some amazing dialogue, some really great storylines, some fun inside jokes that propagate throughout the show in a very arrested development style way, if you've ever seen that show. A lot of jokes that just get better with time. But the newest season in particular is just astounding. It builds off of what they did in the last season, where they mixed in a whole lot of very serious, very dark, difficult topics and discussed them within this framework of hijinks and goofiness and essentially a cartoon version of LA, of Hollywood more specifically, where everyone is an animal and the main character is a washed up childhood star who was in like a a 90s era sitcom. And he is also a horse. So it's very funny in the traditional cartoon way, but also in some ways a very sophisticated, upgraded version of that in my mind. It made me feel a lot of feels that have never been spurred by a cartoon before. Just very deep and interesting and complicated in the best way, in a very, very watchable way. So if you get the chance, if you have access to it, if you have access to Netflix, I highly recommend checking out BoJack Horseman and particularly the most recent season. Though, if you have not seen the previous seasons, it's probably worth starting at the beginning because there are a whole lot of ongoing inside jokes that you'll definitely want to see the beginning of. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. A full list of the books that I've written can be found there as well. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. On pretty much every social network, I am at Colin is my name, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Feel free to reach out and say hello. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.